This is an interview with Danish writer and academic Mikael Fransen on depression, what politics and activism look like when we're all depressed, and if there are ways to escape this pain and suffering many of us go through silently through collective action and collective projects. I've delayed putting this interview out um, in large part because I, myself, uh, as the host of the Arts of Travel podcast and the founder of Asia Art Tours, uh, have been going through a profound period of depression for much of my 30s. This has been a hell that I'm very reluctant to talk about, but increasingly with suffering all around the world being impossible to ignore, I have uh, been more open about this with guests recently and in this discussion with Mikkel, uh, we're quite open and, and naked with uh, the pain that depression has caused us in our lives. Uh, it's not a solipsistic conversation. We talk quite a bit about how depression is something that is collective, how politics is not seemingly answering or providing catharsis for the pain and suffering that we feel. So this will be a conversation that juxtaposes an intimacy of the self and I think perhaps the loneliness and pain and depression that is a global phenomenon and problem that has not been addressed. For more conversations like this, you can go to the Arts of Travel podcast. We try to have very interesting, empathetic, and well-researched conversations on a variety of subjects. And you can go to our website, asiaarttours.com. You'll find the same level of nuance, honesty, and uh, an exploration on a variety of subjects on our website in the form of print interviews with thinkers from around the world. Here's my conversation now with Mikkel Fransen on depression, politics, and beyond therapy, how we can remember and learn how to feel good about ourselves again. Thank you. My name is Mikkel Krause-Fransen. I'm a postdoc at the University of Copenhagen in Denmark, where I work on depression and psychopathologies in general, but also work on uh, financialization and finance capital. And in addition, I work as a literary critic at the Danish newspaper uh, Politiken, where I do reviews of contemporary literature, Danish and international. And... Um... I'm an American, as, as people know from listening to this, and we're supposed to be sunny no matter what, even when it's probably not appropriate to be friendly or pretending to be friendly. And so uh, a lot of what we'll be talking about today is sort of uh, depression, emotions, um, emotional labor, 
the performance of happiness versus actual happiness. Um, but a great place to start to center ourselves is, could you discuss very briefly how you became interested in researching depression and um, your own experiences in, in battling um, depression? I think that I became interested in the problem of depression when it was, it was basically a matter of observation, really, um, an observation of, you know, the world, <laughs> uh, as it were, um, and the mental health crisis that is going on in most of the Western world, uh, I guess, uh, the... Uh, the ways in which more and more people are depressed or diagnosed as um, depressed, um, but of course also the increasing rates of anxiety, stress-related uh, phenomena. So it seemed important or imperative even for me to begin to reflect on some of the causes um, of that particular crisis, um, that a crisis that is obviously to me related to the other crisis uh, that we're faced with today. Um, so that was my observation as far as the world is concerned. And then I also had a parallel observation um, regarding uh, some of the literature and some of the cultural works that I were preoccupied with at the time. And this is maybe five or six years ago. And it struck me that a lot of the writers that that I read were also interested in trying to figure out um, various mental illnesses, but depression, and they were oftentimes uh, their works were based on personal experiences uh, that they then gave expression uh, in literary and cultural form. Uh, so that connection between the world and the works uh, made me sort of you know dive deeper into this uh, nexus. Um, so that's my academic interest, I guess you could say. But on a more personal note, I, ha I had this brief um, episode of, of depression um, after I had twins uh, in 2013. And uh, I suffered, I guess, from what is called a postpartum depression. Um, and that lasted for, I guess, a year or so, uh, where I was severely depressed. Uh, and not really being able to take care of uh, my newborn children and, you know, burned out and stressed out and depressed and just lying in bed, really, without any um, ability uh, to really participate in that work that is called parenting. Um, so, yeah, that's the more personal note. And so um, within American uh, culture, but also... Uh, Scandinavian or Nordic culture, uh, notably with uh, Karl Nausgaard, but in an American context, maybe something like Ernest Hemingway, or on a lighter note, something like Woody Allen, um, individuals have often used uh, depression or um, sadness as sort of um, the artist's burden or a sort of perverse inspiration for the artist. And... Um, these writers I've mentioned, people like Dennis Johnson, um, many, many comedians, uh, have talked about this notion of being almost afraid to lose their depression 
because they feel uh, David Foster Wallace's well comes to mind, who we'll discuss uh, later, of losing their depression uh, and feeling that it coincides with their artistic talents or inspiration. So I'm wondering for what you've researched um, and for your own experiences writing with depression, what are your thoughts on this uh, historic relationship? Maybe it's a contemporary one, maybe it's longstanding between creatives and depression. That's a difficult question, of course, to answer. And there's a lot to be said about the political aspects, but also the historical ones. Um, and of course, I mean, the illness of depression or melancholia, it goes back, I mean, to the birth of humankind, really. And it's well known uh, from the ancient and, and, and um, Greek world with um, Aristotle and others who talked about melancholia and who also had this notion of melancholia being the artist's disease, sort of, you know, where you had the aristocratic male genius um, who was also oftentimes suffering from bouts of melancholia. Um, and that notion or myth really has persisted uh, throughout history. Um, the romantic poets of course comes to mind here as well um but i would say so there is of course this trans historical uh, dimension of the illness uh, but there's also a specific historical contemporary uh, framework that i think is important um which goes back to the beginning of the 1970s or after the three golden decades after the second world war where depression sort of um, achieved a, a whole new meaning and, and, and a totally different status within the medical and psychiatric discourse at first uh, within the diagnostic manuals. But then the rates of depressions um, uh, saw through the roof, really, um, and sort of replaced anxiety and other earlier forms of uh, pathologies as the predominant one. Um, and then, of, 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 of course, when we are talking about depression, there is depression and then there is depressions, so to speak, uh, which means um, that sometimes when reading, for instance, David Foster Wallace, right, I mean, he's suffering from such a severe depression that I don't think he has any romantic or romanticized uh, perception of it. Um, to him, it was literally hell on earth. And he described this as this unbearable pain, which in the end also made him kill himself. So I think there is a danger of romanticizing this um, creative uh, dimension of depression, uh, to be honest. Um, there is also this notion that depressed people, they, are, they have a more accurate assessment of how things are compared to people who are not depressed. And I think, of course, there is some truth to that, to, um, to that, but we should be wary of, you know, exaggerating um, the clarity or the creativity in the depressive state, because more often than not, it is just a debilitating, you know, painful experience with immense personal and political consequences one last thing uh, that I would want to say is that 
when I've read about depression in this uh, clinical sense, uh, depression is not a very creative sense uh, in a paradoxical way. Uh, depression is the state where you don't really create anything, you don't write anything, you don't paint anything. Um, it is only when you are on your way out of it or on the other side uh, that you are in, in fact able to to do anything. Um, because when you are severely depressed, you are really just lying in bed uh, doing nothing. To, to center the discussion a little bit further, I'd like to turn to your essay, uh, How I Discovered your writing was through the uh, L.A. Review of Books, and it coincides a lot with um, my thinking, uh, thinking uh, thinkers most notably like Mark Fisher, who you cite throughout uh, the essay. And um, Fisher, for people who don't know, also took his own life, but was deeply involved in thinking about sort of the emotionality of politics, the, the sort of emotional relationship between capitalism, consumption, and the consumer, um, how to sort of figure out how to know oneself if we live under a superstructure of capitalism where everything is reproduced within it for the purpose of reproducing capital. It's very hard to know where you, your love of Beyonce begins and Beyonce the product ends and so on. So, Early on in your essay, you you make a point of emphasizing the following to readers of the essay, and I'm going to do a long-form quote here. The importance of arriving at a political understanding of depression cannot be overstated. If the reader only takes one thing away from my text, let it be this. Depression has a set of causes and a concrete context that transcends any diagnostic manual as well as the neoliberal ideology of focusing on subjects, not structures, personal responsibilities, not collective ones, chemistry, not capital. So uh, that's the end of the quote. And I'm wondering for you, when you look at your own situation or figures you, you obviously see as uh, scholars to study and are worth considering, how do some of these larger superstructures of the moment, be it capitalism, be it climate change, be it sort of the rise of very toxic political ideologies, be it state surveillance, um, how do these, you think, relate to depression in our current era? And then I have a follow-up to that, but I just would like you to sort of uh, expand on that if you could, uh, however you'd like. When you look at the the popular discourse, but also the psychiatric and diagnostic discourse on, on depression, um, you mainly get the uh, the sense that if you are depressed, then it is your own fault, really, and your own personal, uh, personal responsibility, and that the depression somehow lies inside of you. Um, and when you read through the diagnostic manuals, uh, they avoid... Um, uh, any kind of contextualization of the pathology. So they look at a, a set of symptoms only. And um, I think it's obvious that, of course, there are biology, chemistry, genetics um, involved in depression, but that is uh, not the whole story by any means. Um, 
And when we look at the capitalist society in which we live and have lived since the 1970s, which is kind of where I start my story, um, it's clear to me that a lot of people get depressed because not of their self or not because of their internal structures or not because of their brain or not because of their chemistry, but because of the world in which they live or the work that they hate or the levels of debt that are kind of like haunting their present from the future. So they are all they are there are all these external circumstances and context and political factors that we need really to think about when thinking about depression. Um, for instance, it is well known and well documented that the levels of debt um, that a student or worker uh, or a person has um, has consequences for their mental well-being. And if you are indebted, it is uh, much more likely that you will suffer from depression or other mental illnesses. So I think these relations, these economic matters, uh, uh, are too important to be left out when when considering depression. Um, yeah, so that's one way to go about it. I mean, there are studies that document uh, quite clearly that austerity politics or policies actually kill people and that inequality kills and that people who are living in poverty are three times as likely to be depressed than people who are not poor. So there are these class issues, there are issues of race and gender, there are all these suicidal um, aspects that are left out of the diagnostic manuals, but also of the general neoliberal framework uh, within which uh, depression is uh, perceived. It um, reminded me of Carl Polanyi's uh, sort of concept of the double movement, where I'm not going to try to quote that because I always mess it up when I do. But this idea of capitalism first injures you, so it gives you debt, makes you poor. Uh, if we study someone like Cedric Robinson, we can look at uh, the racialization of capitalism, so how uh, racism and capitalism intersect to create these intersectional oppressions. And then it blames you for your injury. Um, and uh, this, uh, you, you, you go on to say um, later in the essay, and I'm quoting again, uh, failing to be happy is simply immoral. If you are such an immoral and bad person that you have become unhappy or depressed, it is you and you alone that is to blame. This is the blaming cult of contemporary capitalism. You are causing your own depression, even when evidently you are not. Um, for your own depression or through working through individuals like Fisher or from talking to family and friends or from individuals who've responded to your essay, could you explain a bit this sort of double movement of capitalism or uh, other forms of oppression, racism, sexism, injuring you and then make blaming you for the injury? Could you expand on that? Yeah, certainly. Um, this is also what I... in in the essay calls the double injury of capitalism, right? Um, and, I, and, and we've already talked about the first injury, um, the way in which um, capitalism uh, causes depression and causes distress and, and, and 
and causes uh, people to live miserable lives. But then the second injury is that then people are made to feel responsible for their own unhappiness or for their uh, state of being. And we see that all over. And I mean, we see that in commercials, we see that in the, in the diagnostic manuals, we see that, you know, in the media uh, at large, where psychologists or psychiatrists are, are talking about depression, but they are talking about it um, uh, in, in a way that makes people responsible for their own illness. So they would say, well, if you could only man up or if you could only, you know, pull yourself together or if you could only, you know, have a more positive mindset, then you can actually uh, get out of your depression and get out of bed. So there is uh, both a causality at stake here, but also a morality uh, um, where it is, quite frankly, um, if you are feeling unhappy or feeling depressed, then you are considered to be a bad person, to put it crudely, perhaps. Um, I look at this uh, self-help video by this man called Leo Gura, um, who basically says that if you are depressed, it is because you have shit psychology, he says. Um, and you can see that also, I mean, talking about commercials, uh, when you have Carlsberg commercials uh, welcoming visitors to Copenhagen Airport to the happiest nation on earth, or when you look at Coca-Cola, uh, whose slogan is choose happiness, uh, there, there you get the vision or version even of happiness as, as a personal choice. But that would also mean that unhappiness uh, is a personal choice also as, and a personal responsibility of the self. So we have this strange situation, this paradoxical, cruel situation really, where people are, are made to suffer, where people are made to feel bad, but then they are also made to feel bad about feeling bad. Uh, and I mean, when I talk to people, um, it is oftentimes uh, this particular bind that they are confronted with and the pain that they are feeling. They are sort of, you know, left alone in their illness and they are told that it is their fault alone. So I think there's a lot of relief or potential in just trying to say it's not on you and it's not you. It is us and it is society and it is capitalism. So it is not a personal responsibility. It is a collective one. Capitalism will, will wreck your body in a lot of ways. It'll break your back in the factory. It will make you obese from um, uh, consuming soft drinks and fast food. It will uh, blacken your lungs and your teeth because you need to be smoking cigarettes to relieve stress. Do you see this sort of double injury as well within... Um, uh, we've discussed mental health where capitalism makes us feel awful and then feel awful about feeling awful, do we say the same thing for physical health, where capitalism makes our bodies this way and then blames us and demands that we consume our way out of our consumption and, and what it's done to uh, our bodies? Yeah, um, I think they are parallel um, phenomena. I mean, when talking about the what has been called the personal responsibility crusade, it is not only directed at uh, depressed people, to be sure. I mean, when 
uh, people are not uh, fit and healthy and slim or thin. Um, it is also uh, the case that these people um, are um, are made are made to feel morally responsible and 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 bad about their problems and about their physical um, problems. Um, so I think, I mean, these processes, they go hand in hand and, and cannot really be separated. What I've been trying to do is to focus uh, more or less exclusively on the problem of depression, but uh, similar arguments could definitely be made regarding obesity, regarding smoking. Um, because it is basically the same ideal of the happy, vibrant, uh, healthy, stellar performance of the individual that are driving this uh, ideological paradigm um, uh, as a cover-up really for the structural crisis uh, uh, that we're living in. But when we look at the the gendered history of labor, and you said a phrase a little bit ago that I, I, I don't see enough research on sort of how depression is viewed within society based on gender lines. Through your writing or your um, research, do you have thoughts about where this sort of notion of manning up comes from and, and why, you know, I've heard that in a context uh, as a CIS uh, man in uh, in America, I was. It seems like something that men in in many uh, heteronormative patriarchal based societies here. What have you noticed or are starting to look into about how depression is viewed within society on gender lines and how that connects to some of these themes of of uh, capitalism, uh, mental health, and and uh, how societies are structured. Maybe one place to begin uh, answering that complicated questions uh, that is, I think, too important to be left out, regardless of how I am answering it. <laughs> I think that, I mean, there is this paradoxical uh, statistics, uh, um, which is that the ratio, uh, gender ratio, um, regarding depression is two to one um, with uh, women having, uh, there are twice as many women diagnosed with depression as men. And that's the first stat. Uh, but then if you look at suicides, it is the other way around. So there is obviously this issue of gender and masculinity because it could also be the case that a lot of men, I mean, that's a well-known phenomenon when talking about physical problems that men do not go to the doctor, right? Um, so there are a lot of men who don't show up in, in the statistics, uh, to be sure. But then apparently more men than women uh, are willing or willing is maybe the wrong word, but they are um, more prone to uh, committing suicide. Uh, and I don't have a really you know, good answer to why that is the case. Um, but what is certainly clear to me is that 
I mean, I've looked at commercials from the 50s and, and 60s, for instance, um, uh, commercials directed as house directed at housewives uh, unhappy or more accurately anxious housewives um, where the medical industry put out uh, anti-anxiety uh, products uh, directly targeted at women at home uh, working uh, doing reproductive labor um, there is this one striking commercial where um, which says that okay, we can't make her free, but we can make her feel less anxious. So there has also, I mean, there has always been these uh, gender issues at stake. Uh, also going back to Aristotle, whom we talked about earlier, uh, where the one where the depressed person is basically male um, is this artist genius. Um, a very masculine figure and I think um, depression is a more in quotes uh, democratic suffering um, in the sense that it uh, it 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 afflicts uh, more or less everyone but more women than men um, and and I, I mean this is maybe a detour but I certainly remember that when I was depressed, it was surrounded by this feeling of shame and guilt, really, um, that it felt wrong for me, you know, as the father uh, to be, you know, put down or to become depressed uh, while my partner, when, you know, breastfeeding and, I mean, doing all this work and she had all the reason to, to be depressed um, also. Uh, and... It, it was difficult just to talk about, really, and it was difficult to to get out in the open, um, which is also, I guess, a well-known uh, phenomenon. I was thinking, my family, we, we used to be pretty wealthy by world standards, and then uh, we lost a ton of money, and now we're not. We're, I don't know, probably middle class by world standards, but by where we live would be maybe lower class. I'm not sure. In any event, when I was younger and we had money, I would do therapy. Now that I'm much uh, poorer, I take pills. And I'm wondering when it comes to looking at the sort of treatments of depression, how do they skew or maybe, and this is a coarse analysis, but I'll be a vulgar Marxist for a sense. How do they maybe skew where for the poor, the treatment for depression is man up, or a pill that gets you back to work, but for the wealthy, it's, oh, we're going to do psychoanalysis for seven months until you're healed. How, how do you see these treatments or the, this sort of, um, these products, like you talked about the sort of uh, health and wellness guru, um, skew based on one's class position within uh, societies? Well, I mean, there's been a lot of stories lately about um, people who do not have access to, I mean, it's mainly in the US, which is of course a totally different situation uh, than, than, than a Danish context, right? Because we actually do have universal healthcare and you can actually get uh, access to the psychiatric system. Um, whereas, the, whereas a lot of stories lately report uh, uh, or, or I mean, tell tragic stories about people who do not have access 
uh, to therapy or just to psychiatry or, or, or to any kind of basic treatment. And in the end, um, they die. I mean, so it is a matter of life and death for people. And I mean, people do not have, have the same access um, as you just mentioned. So I don't think it is vulgar Marxism by any means. I think it's just the objective, objective truth, really, that, I mean, when you are, you know, higher middle class, upper class, then you have a totally different kind of uh, therapy offered to you. You have uh, choices uh, that you can make. Uh, do I want to take this medicine? Do I want to do talk therapy? Do I want to do psychoanalysis? Whereas, I mean, if you are poor uh, or, at, or at the bottom of, of society, society, these choices are not yours to be made. Um, and I mean, people actually kill themselves from too much debt, but also from not having any kind of access to, to therapy. Um, so, I mean, these issues uh, cannot be left uh, unconsidered. Uh, I also write about in my essay about um, people of color and mothers of color who are in a much higher risk of developing or suffering from depression uh, than other than other mothers. Uh, and I also look at uh, uh, some um, asylum seekers here in Denmark and the children especially, uh, where half of them uh, would actually be, um, would probably get a psychiatric diagnosis if they did in fact have access uh, to the domain of psychiatry, which in most cases they do not. So there are, of course, all these institutional um, economic structures that determine uh, how your depression is diagnosed, but also treated. By not treating these, uh, our mental health, what does that do for the long-term effects on someone who... Um, is low income or in comparison to what does it mean in a society where a large class of people can never have their mental health treated compared to a small group of people who can? I think there's a lot to be said again. Um, and we have all these stories about, I'll, I'll just mention some names, right? I mean, uh, there is Daniel Desnoyas, there is... Um, uh, Jerome from the BBC documentary Killed by My Dead. There, is, there was a student in France who set himself on fire because insecurity kills. There is this example that I refer to in my book with the Greek man Dimitris Christoulas. And they have all basically been killed by their debt and, and by their depression um, uh, and, and been killed by unequal and uneven access uh, to the systems that we talked about before, uh, where people do not afford or cannot afford medicine, cannot afford therapy. And so, of course, there is 
it can certainly save lives to have universal health care. Also talking about the US election and Bernie Sanders and all that. Um, there's definitely a, some gain there. Um, but then again, we also have to realize, I mean, speaking from a Danish context where people actually do have, or most people, not all, a lot of people have access um, to help, basically. Um, it is still very much a sort of, you know, we are treating the symptoms, but we're not really changing the underlying causes or the underlying structures that are causing depression and other illnesses to begin with. So we we can get far by policy measures, by access to psychiatry, but it is not really, to my mind at least, a permanent solution. It is a start and it will save lives, but it will not get to the bottom of the problem. And the bottom of the problem, to my mind, is capitalism. So while we may be forced to also look at solutions on a more, you know, individual therapeutic level and uh, by means of universal health care and and all that it is imperative also to work at a more long-term structural difficult level uh, where we change i mean the way that our societies function the way that the economy functions the way um, that we live basically uh, because if we do not do that and if we just treat depressed people so that they can get back to the work or the world that made them sick in the first place then we have not really come that far turning back to your essay you sort of talk about um uh, this relationship between capitalism competition and mental health uh this is again a, a long-form quote um, the violence and social suffering are different are differently distributed along axes of class, gender, and race. So is the climate crisis insofar as citizens of Copenhagen are not feeling the devastating weight of it as those in Chittagong. Uh, I abridge the quote here, and um, there are ellipses from the same section. This should not, however, lead to a competition of social suffering. Competition is precisely what capitalism is all about and seeks to intensify so that we are simultaneously alone in our suffering and fighting among each other's suffering selves. Could you um, discuss what you mean by that within this sense of uh, politics, um, Twitter? I mean, I could just show people Twitter and I think it would uh, really explain a lot of what that quote means for me, but how do you see this competition of suffering uh, both in uh, our culture and perhaps in this relationship between uh, ourselves and capitalism? I think it's important to realize and recognize that when talking about depression, and uh, we are not all in the same proverbial, proverbial boat. And I mean, there are all these unequal uh, access really um so we are not equally depressed we are not equally fucked up there is a difference between being depressed in america being depressed in denmark there's a difference between being white and depressed or being black and depressed there's i mean there are all these differences um but having said that i think and maybe for that reason really uh, i think it's really important that 
uh, that we avoid any kind of, you know, competition among ourselves. And there is, of course, a tendency, and I guess that's also what you are hinting at. There is this tendency, tendency on the left, uh, where people are basically arguing and 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 fighting about who is suffering the most. And while the differences uh, and the uh, are important. It is also equally Im important uh, to realize that we are also fighting against the same monster uh, called capital and that the need um, has never been greater, I think, for building alliances of care uh, that take the differences into account, but they but do not let these differences destroy the alliances. Um, because if we are just sitting each in our boat, uh, then we are basically just, you know, reinforcing the kind of competition and the kind of loneliness that capitalism is all about, uh, really. Uh, I mean, just, to, I mean, one of the writers that I write about is a French author, uh, well known to most listeners, I guess, Michel Houellebecq. And what he is describing in his novel is basically a society but also a culture of competition where everybody is competing among each other uh, like in a, a kind of hunger games reality uh, where it's just one big mess and one big competition uh, people competing about uh, promotion and about you know social erotic uh, sexual status and all that um, and I think that kind of competition must be avoided, especially in our suffering. And for the relationship between capitalism and the state, obviously, um, I think it's even touching places like Denmark, but uh, more obviously in the uh, Australia, the UK, and of course the US, uh, this notion of sort of means testing, of having to prove um, that the state should help you. Uh, as opposed to more sort of Keynesian eras of capitalism where uh, the state viewed almost the, the well-being of society as integral to the well-being of the state. Now the state makes you sort of compete in terms of listing how much you've suffered. Um, and, and that the more you suffer, the easier it is to qualify, but that scale continues to shrink and shrink and shrink. Do you feel that this notion of sort of competition of suffering is connected to the the era of of uh, post Reagan or Thatcher neoliberalism that more and more nations are living under? Definitely. I mean, one of Thatcher's uh, Margaret Thatcher's famous slogans was not only that alternatives do not exist, but also that uh, society as such do not exist or does not exist. Um, and what the only reality is uh, the individual and the individual family. Uh, so, so we have this competitive culture that at least goes back to a lot of the things that Thatcher, but also Reagan, um, initiated. Uh, and I mean that kind of competition. It is also what you know. Um, drives depression, really. I mean, when you sort of fall out or 
get too exhausted uh, or cannot compete anymore, then you collapse or, or then you implode uh, into a depressed state, really. Um, so I think, I mean, one of the collective kind of therapies, again, in scare quotes, or one of the um, solutions, really, is to, you know, collectivize the ways in which we deal with depression and to realize that it is not our own individual problem and it is not our own individual project uh, to be happy and to not be depressed. Um, and it is certainly also uh, important not to stay in that mode of competition that is permeating uh, society as such, uh, but to try to to leave that behind, um, even as we, as I stressed earlier, recognize that we are not all the same and we are not all equal and we are not, you know, in, in the same boat uh, to stay in that metaphor. Towards the end, you start making recommendations and I like something that you've said. So this is quoting from you again, there's ellipses but it's from the same section. Maybe a good place to start then with regards to the politics of depression is to collectivize suffering, externalize blame, communize care. Italian thinker Franco Bifo, Bifo Baratti may be right when he asserts that in the days to come, politics and therapy will become one and the same. Therapy is res resistance, not as reactionary obedience to the given order. Therapy is a collective project, not an individual one. So I wanted to ask you, um, I've heard from individuals I've spoken to in places like Lebanon uh, or Hong Kong that they'll say, you know, protesting was the happiest they've felt maybe ever. Um, like they, they'll say it to me in this aura, almost this aura of uh, ecstatic joy that you can clearly tell they're being honest, even if you can't begin to comprehend it. Um, because you've spent the day refreshing Twitter and <laughs> waiting for an email, that the, the joy they describe sounds uh, revolutionary, um, both in the political sense, but also the personal. So I'm wondering if you could talk about in this era of contemporary revolutions, what has it said to you about depression, joy, and how revolution within um, a society that's killing us can be therapeutic? Revolution can certainly be considered a kind of antidepressant. Uh, but then the dialectical catch, uh, which I also mentioned in, in the essay, is that in order to do revolution or to particip participate in social movements, you need to be able to get out of bed. And I start uh, the text uh, with a quote from Joanna Hedwath, Um which poses the question of uh, how to throw bricks through the windows of banks if you cannot get out of bed in the morning. Uh, so I think a precondition also for doing revolution is, you know, to be able to get out of bed. Uh, so dealing with depression becomes a kind of precondition for revolutionary activity. But then again, on the other hand, revolutionary activity can also be a way of getting people out of 
uh, a collective or individual depression. There is, of course, no easy solution to that, but there is this dialectical relationship between it. But what I do think is crucial is to avoid the kind of institutionalized and individualized form of therapy that is dominating uh, today, uh, where the goal is not only to treat your depression as your individual problem, but also to treat depression so that you can get back to your work and get back to being a productive citizen and to get back really to maintaining the status quo. So I think, um, and of course there are historical lessons here. I mean, when talking about uh, slavery, when talking about uh, Audre Lorde, her writings, her practices, when talking about uh, a Danish artist uh, whom I've recently begun to work with called Jakob Jakobsen, they are trying to develop practices of revolutionary care which transcend the individual uh, depressed person. They are doing sort of work uh, where people get together and try to, you know, uh, mend each other and to take care of each other and to take care of their own selves and their individuals in, in individual depressions in a collective way. And of course, there are no blueprints for these kind of activities, but I think there are inspirations and there are, you know, ways that we can expand our imagination, really, our social and political and collective imagination uh, about the world that we want to live in. So I want to talk about David Foster Wallace for a sec. Um, his complicated, uh, his problematic is a better word, uh, misogyny aside, um, and fuck that, you know, don't be a misogynist and don't be an emotionally manipulative person to sleep with women. But he uh, obviously had very interesting insights into the human condition, despite his own personal failings. And one of the better essays I've read on Wallace, I'll need to cite it. I think it's from the Hudson Review. It talks a lot about how Wallace never really believed in his own project. In a lot of his essays, you know, he'll go through this very interesting, nuanced breakdown of uh, his view into um, uh, human emotions, the human condition. Uh, consider the lobster is a great example. And then at the end, he'll end with sort of a line like, take it or leave it. Or you can believe this or not. It's your choice. And the writer of this piece, in, uh, again, I believe it's the Hudson Review, he talks a lot about he believes this was one of the great sort of sources of Wallace's depression, this idea of the limits of his own project of being a writer, um, and that this was sort of essential to understanding Wallace's depression in that he you know, was being told by everyone, uh, you're the uh, literary genius, you're the voice of your generation, da-da-da-da-da, but he himself thought his impact was so limited almost as to be uh, a, a cosmic farce, a cosmic joke. Um, I'm wondering, when we look at a lot of the depression of artists, do you think there is something where, for me, the mistake is not Wallace 
it was a great writer in many ways, but his mistake was to look at his project as one of the individual. Um, and I think this is a mistake a lot of artists make, myself included, where we'll look at what we're doing and say, I need to change the world. I need to write the great book. As opposed to trying to, as you've talked about, build projects collectively. Could you could you talk about how this, this, this crippling doubt uh, of a lot of artists or this um, infinite pressure that they put upon themselves is perhaps one we need to examine more thoroughly if we're going to build more collective solutions to opposing capitalism and dealing with the depression it causes. I write quite a lot about, or I have written quite a lot about David Foster Wallace. I've also written about Michel Houellebecq. And I think it's fair to say and safe to say that both were idiots. <laughs> but I think the more interesting point is that and this is maybe a bit more controversial uh, even, that people who are depressed are not fun to be around, and people who are depressed can often be idiots and be self-absorbed and be, you know, narcissistic in their own suffering. And David Foster Wallace was very acutely aware of that particular syndrome, um, of how depression sort of, you know, destroys uh, your capacity for being a good person, which he also wrote about in the short story, The Depressed Person, which was meant to be this mean portrait of another person, but it's also definitely a self-portrait. Um, but what he failed to do, and that's beyond doubt, really, was to think about depression in in a collective way. Um, he remained within this individual framework. And of course, he wrote about American culture and these, you know, broader issues. But he couldn't really escape this um, solipsistic problem that he, you know, returned to again and again, where each individual is trapped within his or her own mind or his or her own head. And um, there's really no escape. And even if you know the diagnosis, the diagnosis does not entail the cure, as he also wrote repeatedly. Um, and I think, uh, Michel Ulbeck, it's pretty much the same. Um, and I think maybe that's not only a problem for depressive literature, maybe it's even a, a problem that is inherent to literature as such, which is more than art and more than other art forms is a highly individual affair right um, so even if we can find a lot of illuminating descriptions of depression of how it feels to be depressed how times move how, how time moves more slowly how what kind of bodily physical pain um, depression entails then we are still left with this very individual framework for understanding depression. Uh, so I think, I mean, we obviously also need to look beyond uh, literature and, and culture when trying to find solutions uh, to this um, topical problem. I don't know if that's a way of talking about David Foster Wallace, but well, I mean, I have this strange relation to his work really, where I was really 
you know, fascinated by it for a long time, and now I'm just fed up with it, uh, to be honest. <laughs> um, especially that sense that you're left with as a reader. Um, I get more and more convinced that his work is just so depressed uh, through and through. And I mean that every single sentence is basically a symptom of his depression. And that's not me trying to do a biographical reading of his. It's just, I mean, the whole universe, it's so saturated with depression and with his experiences of depression that these, that it, it colors everything else, really. Um, and of course, there is a misogyny and there is this um, masculinity also that we were also talking about earlier. Uh, that also makes this work problematic in many ways. Um, I used to really like this a show called Chapel Trap House when I was young, a little younger, probably two, three years ago, four years ago, two, three years ago. And on one of the episodes, they started doing these live streams. And, you know, because it's America and we don't talk about our alcoholism, they got extremely drunk. You know, the point of this is not fun drinking anymore. This is, uh, something's going on. Uh, maybe it was just an off night, but it, it looks like the drinking you do when you want to hurt yourself. And one of the hosts, you know, at this point of inebriation, it was just one person who was consuming this much alcohol. The, the rest were sort of cognizant that there are media figures so they can drink, but you know. And he starts, he, he gets inebriated to the point where he's talking about the election results of, uh, I think this is the Senate race. And he just goes, kill yourself, kill everyone else around you. None of it matters. And just starts talking like this until they literally have to sort of get him off air. And this was so different from his personality that he presented on air. And this is a very popular show. They make about, you know, over a million dollars a year uh, are written about in The New Yorker and whatnot, have a lot of powerful fans but it was so clear to me, this sort of performative emotionality of we never actually know who these people are. And they're saying they want to advocate for a better world. But to me, if you're not emotionally honest and we don't, you only express yourself in terms of this rage or this sort of performative humor, where even if we get to that better world, we'll have no idea who we are and we'll all just be strangers to one another anyway who can't work together. And I, I, I'm just wondering for when we look at Wallace and his his burning desire for sincerity, do you see that question still unanswered in the, the US, UK left or the left broadly where a lot of us are performing emotions, but in terms of the actual pain we feel um, or in terms of in our quest for power, letting it consume us, that the emotions of what it means to be a leftist, of, of caring, of love, of intimacy, of openness, are not being actualized as we try to build political power. That if we build political power, but it's based on rage and emotional distance and sadness, it's even if we have the mechanisms of power, if it's fueled by those emotions, in no way will it bring about sort of a better world. When Wallace is so consistently um, 
framing uh, the problem, the main problem of America, but maybe also of the West uh, as a problem that concerns the relation between irony and sincerity, I become more and more convinced that that's a misconstruction really of our main problems today. I don't think the main issue today is that whether we are sincere or not, or whether we are ironic or not. Um, but what I do think is important that is, is the role that these negative emotions uh, can play and do play in political movements. And I think, I mean, Anne Svetkovich has also written about this, um, about the potential sometimes to insist on negative emotionality or negative emotions, on being unhappy or being a killjoy, as the concept is also called. Um, and I think there's something to be said about um, the need for not, I mean, the importance of not just brushing over these kind of emotions and the need for not just trying to transform them into something positive or something, you know, more productive. Uh, and I think, I mean, Wallace was a weird figure also because he wrote a lot about people trying to be good and trying to do sincere, honest, good things to other people. But then there were, there were always this, there was also always this catch that they were just doing it to look good themselves. I, again, this narcissistic, solipsistic trap that he was so obsessed with, really, uh, that when you do something good, how can you be sure that you're not just doing it for your own good, right? I mean, that was the basic philosophical problem that you know ran through all of his books. And, and, and I think in terms of dealing with depression, and building alliances and you know participating in collective political projects i'm not so sure that the question of sincerity versus irony is not a dead end or cul-de-sac really um i think there are different questions to be answers answered before that particular one um yeah and of course there is a lot of toxic emotionality going around and 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 being thrown around um but what i actually think it, it comes through the work of wallace uh, to stick with him is actually a quite honest maybe you know unconsciously honest uh, depiction of what it feels to be depressed that's what i take away from his work that it is actually quite honest in a, maybe a very complicated and convoluted and unconscious way, but it is very honest about how it feels to be depressed and what kind of living hell that is. Um, so, I, I mean, that is what I still find productive in thinking about his work. It is that kind of emotion, really. Um, but I, I'm still... <laughs> very much in doubt whether that is my reading of him or whether that is just, you know, something that he was continuously trying to evade or hide. To leave Wallace behind, but to stick with men, because um, 
men are all sorts of fucked up in terms of our, as we sort of talked about the sort of the prisons of, of gender and what it does to um, how we feel it's what is and isn't acceptable in terms of our mental health. Um, I Do you feel that when it comes to men on the left that a lot of, um, if, if we want to build a better world, we're going to need to have intimacy. And I suppose to, to again, leave Wallace aside, I'm not interested in him any longer, um, though I am interested in him, just not for the, the tail end of our discussion. We're talking a lot, you and I, about building a politics of we, which I, I think uh, the politics of me is on the right. There is no society. There's just a brutal competition kill or be killed. But to build a politics of we, I have to know you. And to do that requires intimacy. And I suppose my main fear with what I see, I can only comment on the U.S. left, is that we don't really know each other and how a lot of the media that is being produced is not one of intimacy. It's one of projection. It's one of extremely hostile emotions. Uh, and it's one that talks down. It does not talk or, or try to build conversation. It, it tries to dictate. It's very much to me a language seeped in this desire for power. And I'm wondering just maybe for, for men and the left, do you also share or have insight into this idea of if we want to build a better world, we're going to have to learn how to communicate intimacy in our political language and our personal politics. I do think the question of intimacy is absolutely central uh, to what we're talking about. Uh, but I do also, but I, but I would also want to suggest that being intimate with each other does not necessarily require that we like each other. I mean, me being intimate with you um, can still be a way of, you know, being together in our uh, negative feelings or, or in our dislike of each other, uh, at least to begin with. There is this tendency, I, I, I see that a lot in, in the refugee uh, debates in Denmark and Europe, where some people on the left argue that we should grant these people rights and that we should take care of them because they are nice people. And that is totally not my view. I think we should take care of them and grant them rights, uh, regardless of what kind of persons they are. And, and I mean, it's the same with the left um, in other contexts. I don't think that it is a precondition for revolutionary activity that we like each other. I think it is a condition of possibility that we are intimate with each other, that we are bodily connected, that we are close to each other. But of course, conflicts cannot be avoided. But we misconstrue the situation if we think that we can, you know, have this rosy a honey-like relation with each other while doing important revolutionary work. Um, and I think, I mean, just to do one last callback to David Foster Wallace, that was what he failed to see, that it is not a matter of, you know, 
me liking you or me, you know, being a good person. That is totally not what politics is about. For my introduction to the left, it was through uh, uh, Hubert Marcuse, and that had a huge impact on me. Uh, lately, I've been reading the work of uh, the scholar Sho Kanishi, who um, did, in my mind, one of the most fascinating works of scholarship that looks at um, communication between Japanese and Russian anarchists and socialists uh, and communists uh, during the Sino uh, or during the Jap Japanese Russo Wars uh, and a little bit after. So this would be the period of history where Tolstoy was both the talk of the Russian literary world, but also a very controversial figure within Russia because of the challenges he posed to the Russian church. And uh, Shokanishi, to not um, uh, simplify his incredibly complex work of scholarship, where he's translating Japanese, he's translating Russian, he's translating the translations that they did, it's fantastic. But he talks a lot about Tolstoy had this notion of sort of God without God. Um, Martin Hoglin talks a little bit about this, um, but I, I ultimately like Shokanishi uh, a bit more, and Martin's got enough fame. We don't need to boost him anymore. When we look at sort of the best practices, for me, I, I, I'm fine with there not being a church or that we need to, I think, maybe push back on some of Wallace's more childlike notions of what it means to be good. But I would like a church without a church, a God without a God, a way to develop these best practices with one another um, without the, the um, ultimately self-defeating frameworks of uh, a theocratic religion. And I'm wondering for you as a leftist, and these sorts of ideas of a of a of a Shokanishi or a Tolstoy, do you have a sense of if we're trying to build a world, how we can build better moral practices, better interpersonal practices, uh, in a way that is a faith without a faith, uh, and and so on? I haven't read Tolstoy for a very long time, and I haven't read. Um... Dr. Sho Kanishi. Yeah, but it sounds as if I, sh I really should. Um, so you must send me the reference. I think when talking about the mental health crisis, I'm also talking about it or trying to talk about it as a kind of spiritual crisis um, in the book uh, and elsewhere. And I think, I mean, this also goes back directly to what we were uh, discussing just moments ago, namely that we don't need to like each other to be together and to do revolutionary work together. But what we do need is a kind of, you know, spiritual project uh, in lack of better words. We need to believe in something together. Uh, we need to believe in another world and believe in the possibility that another world uh, can exist or can arise out of our activity. Um, so I'm also very much against the rather fashionable pessimism going on uh, uh, within leftist circles or certain leftist circles, uh, because um, I really do see the 
necessity of developing some kind of, you know, spiritual, political projects or ideals, really, also as a way of getting out of bed, getting out of depression. And I mean, when reading about people who are melancholics for a hundred years ago, their main complaint was that God had left them. And I, I think that's a very prototypical depressive experience that you lack a higher purpose, that you lack somehow a, yeah, some some kind of spiritual object, something to believe in, right? Um, and that can just be a very pragmatic, political thing, uh, another world, another society. There is, of course, the danger of sounding like someone who doesn't, you know, put enough emphasis on materialist issues. Uh, but I think, I mean, I would much rather talk about money than morals. But I would also want to add this uh, spiritual, more uh, evasive aspect uh, of the whole discussion. So um, something leftists don't like to talk about, and I'll end on it because that's sort of funny to me in an ironic way, is uh, is sex. Leftists are were notorious for being bookish nerds who don't get the boy or girl or uh, trans person of our uh, dreams. But um, I've been very interested in sex in terms of the left because, you know, worldwide in, in a lot of late uh, stage capitalist countries, sex really seems to be going down. Uh, birth rates throughout Asia are plummeting. Um, there's newspaper articles that come out constantly about people aren't having sex um, in the U.S. Uh, and uh, I think in other uh, Anglo circles, uh, predominantly, I believe, with, with white men, you have this phenomenon called incels. These men who've either given up sex in sort of this uh, hedonistic nihilism or, or literally believe that no one could ever love them. I found the U.S. left in particular, um, the word I've been dancing around, and I'll say it because it's our last question, is cruel. The U.S. left to me in a lot of ways is extremely cruel in a way that I can't associate with leftism, where I, I don't understand uh, empathy, I think, is a very important concept as well for a lot of what we've talked about today. But... For you as someone who's who has, um, I hope, still a very healthy relationship, partnered, when you look around the world and we see all these people not having sex, being alone, forming online communities about being alone, and and again, to return to Marcuse, who, who I really think was very interesting in, in looking at sex as potentially a way for us to feel better about ourselves. Are there any um, thoughts that you've had about your own work in depression and how it relates to the increasing sexlessness of the world we live in? And when it comes to men or women or uh, trans or, or non-binary identifying individuals who are lonely and, and to be human is, I think, for a lot of us to want to be loved, what would be your concluding advice as sort of, if I can be so uh, 
corny to say a new father uh, about these questions of, of, of loneliness, of, of being unpartnered and still being a good person, even if you feel no one's being good to you. Um, so that's a big question and take it any way you want as the last one. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a good place to end with casting me in the role of a, a sex therapist <laughs> giving advice. Um, yeah, uh, I, th I mean, what I tend to do is talk about desire, maybe more than talking about sex, really. Um, and what is certain is that a, a lot of people who are depressed experience a kind of drying up of desire. They don't, I mean, when you are depressed, you basically do not feel any desire. It's not necessarily the case that the object you desire has been lost. It is rather the case that the desire that was supposed to attach you to any kind of object is no longer there. Uh, so I think one of the important tasks uh, of treating depression or getting out of it is, you know, to redirect or re-establish some kind of desire um, to the other or to others uh, to stay within that Marcusian or psychoanalytical uh, framework. Um, I think that is important. And I, th and I mean, when talking about what is needed on a more spiritual level, for the revolutionary antidepressant activities, I also, of course, uh, would would be tempted to say that desire is also a crucial ingredient in that constellation. Um, you need to desire something to do something. You need to desire another world in order for you to participate in whatever activity. Whether that is translatable into sexual activity I'm not so sure. And of course, a lot of the talk about sex is deeply heteronormative and heterosexual. So I think there's an important task there also to leave that behind. And also thinking about reproduction and reproductive activity, um, talking about children, um, which shouldn't be the only object uh, by any means of sex and desire in, in general. So I think, I mean, I do not see any future um, for ascetic politics. What I do see is the need for developing other forms of desire in thinking about depression and politics in general. I think, I don't know why it's in my head, but it feels interesting, so I'll say it, but I feel like a left without sex becomes fascism. I don't know why. I just feel that. On the other hand, I mean, if you read Charles Bataille's analysis of fascism in the 30s, or, or read um, Reich's work, William Reich's work, mm -hmm. they are very much describing fascism as a very erratic phenomenon. They are describing fascism as a way of releasing all these dark desires, all this sexual energy lying latent in the frustrated workers at the time. So I think, I mean, that... I wouldn't necessarily su subscribe to that kind of uh, analogy, um, if I may be so frank here at the very end. I, I always wonder if that sort of analysis of fascism comes after it's implemented. 
uh, and the people who brought it into being were quite sexless or quite repressed in their desires, as opposed to trying to bring a more left world into being, which would come through consensus and dialogue uh, and intimacy, it feels to me like those people would be much more sexually healthy and happy. Mikkel, this was a really fun chat. Um, I'll send you some reading and you can send me some, but <laughs> that's private to, to, to conclude for our conversation today. Where can people find out more about you? And if you have any closing thoughts, feel free to share them. I have a Twitter, Twitter pro profile, which is just uh, my handle is my name, Mikkel Franzen. Um, and then I'm part of this research project at the University of Copenhagen on finance fictions. I don't know. I don't think we have a homepage yet it's a pretty new project and then uh, of course also you know the book is available uh, going nowhere slow which um, uh, from zero books uh, to do a bit of uh, PR and then of course the Los Angeles review of books uh, piece would be a good place to start what would be sort of an introduction for the book if people like this chat and wanted to see where you go within the work the book is uh, it's dealing with depression in contemporary culture and literature. So it's dealing with David Foster Wallace, Michel Ulbeck, Melancholia, the movie Melancholia from 2011 by Lars von Trier, and then this contemporary artist duo called Claire Fontaine, which is doing highly political work on depression. Um, the piece in LA Review Books is a updated version of some of the stuff that I've been working on since then and my way of trying to update some of the analysis and, and do it a bit more political, less literary and aesthetic.